You know, being a parent ain't easy. We think we know our kids, but there's usually much more below the surface than we realize. Kids aren't always aware of their own feelings, and sometimes they don't know how to process them. Like my son, Zach, who after starting ADD medication, is always a mellow, fun-loving kid. I didn't learn till after his first year of college that he was anxious. I remember one time he was at Adelphi. He was downstairs in the basement because he was doing some work on a film for a class he was taking. And when I talked to him, he was like freaking out. I can't do this. I can't find this. And all I could do was hold him and hug him and say, look, man, you can do this. He tried to hide it through his sarcasm, bravado, but mainly through his music. He and his friends started a ska rock band while in high school called Premarital Sex. which allowed him to express his emotions in a healthy way. Once he stopped playing the drums, he became unglued, untethered. That is where his story of addiction began. I'm grateful to have his music, a bombastic reminder of who Zach was at his most honest, best self. good to be here. Actually, it's good to be anywhere. This is H. Lee, aka Harris Insler, and you're listening to TGMBH, These Ghosts Must Be Heard, a podcast that shares stories and interviews with people who have suffered a loss due to OUD and to others who might be impacted by OUD, opioid use disease. We want to spread awareness of the devastating effects on individuals and society. Today, we are lucky to have a mother, housewife, a teacher, an English teacher, like I was, and an advocate for OUD, Kim Collier. Kim, welcome to the podcast. How are you Thank today? Thank you, Harris. I'm happy to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Just a brief history. I'm from Texas. I've lived here almost my entire life. Grew up in Houston, uh, went to Texas A&M University where I met my husband, Forrest. We got married 33 years ago, live in Midland now, have lived in Midland most of our married lives, have an older daughter, Ashley, and then a younger daughter, Kirby, who passed away to a heroin overdose February 26 of 2016. And that is what has led me to my new passion to be an advocate more than anything to bring awareness to heroin addiction and to try to do my best to help stop the stigma that's attached to it. I was an English teacher, as you said, quite a while ago. I stopped working for a paycheck when my oldest daughter was born and have done just a great deal of volunteer work. Been a mom, a wife, a volunteer over those years. I want you to tell us a little bit about Kirby, your daughter. Just one sentence. How would you describe Kirby? Sure. I would say in one sentence, she was a force of nature. What was your favorite trait about your daughter? My very favorite, I guess, was how much she loved animals. That's something she and I have in common. When she was, we sent her to rehab in California. After she got out of rehab, she was living there. This is so funny because the same thing happened to me when I was younger as well. She found a stray cat outside. 
picked it up, was holding it, loving on it, and ended up with ringworm. The same thing had happened to me from a stray cat way back when. Ringworm is hard to get rid of when you catch it from a cat. That just shows she loved all animals. I mean, we had, you name it, we always had dogs, we always had cats, but we had the small and furries too. Gerbils, hamsters, guinea pigs, we had them all. We did have a gerbil and it was fun, but you know, they come and go pretty fast. <laughs> they do. You have an animal that you love and they leave. It's, it brings back echoes of things that you love that are gone. Oh yeah, we lost our golden retriever, Gus. We got him when Kirby was going into kindergarten and he passed away at 16 and a half when we were just going through hell with Kirby. So I wasn't really able to properly mourn my dog because of course my focus was on my child. Dealing with loss of any kind has added an extra dimension of feelings. I find I am sensitive to losing anything. If I can't find something I'm looking for, there's a strong, uneasy feeling deep in my bones, even from something inconsequential and small. My shrink says it's natural to feel this way. When my childhood friend died in January after enduring months of chemo and radiation therapy, he left a huge void in my life. I miss talking and joking with him and our mutual homies, acting like we were still 19 when we got together. But I still don't understand how inconsequential events, like losing a favorite t-shirt, can bring back echoes of losing a beloved friend or my Zach. Well, I guess that's why I'm still in therapy. Maybe you can enlighten the audience and tell us what kind of a human being she was. Well, she was very, very creative. She had this mind that was just unbelievable. From the time she was little, she loved to make things. So she would make all these creative things for me. And thankfully I have a box full of things she actually touched because that's really important for me to be able to touch things that she touched. Very creative, very, very strong, just physically strong. When she and my husband, her dad would roughhouse with my other daughter, the three of them, she would back up, get this running start, let out this blood curdling scream and just run at him. And she could knock him over. She was very strong. She was athletic. She was always very talented at any sport she tried to pick up. And later volleyball was, was her sport. And she was just so good at that. She was also had this incredible, incredibly brilliant mind. She was in the gifted and talented program and then had all gifted and talented classes in school. So just all of these incredible God-given gifts. When she was little, she loved to play with her friends. They would go in the backyard and do, you know, all of these dances and things I think that little girls probably do, played dress up, played outside, made up all these imaginative games. When she got bigger, I think it was anything she could do to play with friends and not be around us, probably. <laughs> Isn't that the way it goes usually? Our very existence just mortified her. <laughs> the less they see of us, the better. <laughs> I believe you wrote, she started experimenting with drugs in junior high school. It was probably ninth grade, okay, so ninth. that's high school for us. That would be... 2008, 2009. One day, did you just notice something about her, how she was acting? She was probably doing it before you had any idea, correct? 
Oh, without a doubt. She was just difficult. She was a mean person to her family. She treated us terribly. I had tried to take her to a therapist numerous times just to try to work on having her be a happy part of our family. She was unkind to us. So that, that was hard. But the summer after ninth grade, she started, there were a group of them here in Midland and they would all take their dad's keys and sneak out their vehicles in the middle of the night. They'd climb out the window and we didn't know about that for a long time until we figured that one out. She just had this really nasty attitude then, was disrespectful to anyone in authority, parents, teachers, coaches. She would do anything she could just to irritate me. Like we'd get in the car and she wouldn't put her seatbelt on just to try to, to irritate me. I'd taken her to a therapist for the first time in second grade. That's when 9-11 happened and that affected her terribly. She was afraid I was going to die took her to a therapist, thought we worked through that. Ninth grade took her again. And basically she said, I'm just not going to talk. I'll sit here, but I can outlast anyone. So as far as the drug use and the drinking, I don't think that was happening in ninth grade, but then 10th grade, that's when she actually entered high school here. Her sister, my older daughter went away to AM that year. That's when she started drinking, lying, cheating on tests in school, sneaking out, but when I actually found out that she was, because it started with alcohol, marijuana, and then progressed to Xanax, which Xanax wasn't prescribed. She was getting it illegally, of course. You know, it wasn't like a light just went on. It was, it was just a progression, I think, before we started figuring those things out. I mean, maybe you thought at the time, which I probably thought the same thing at the time that Zach was a bit older, you know, it's part of like growing up. Kids' hormones and things are going on. It's so far removed from what was happening in the rest of the country in certain areas. She just, she's, this is how kids grow up sometimes. They change. You don't know what's going on. I didn't know what was going on either. Yes, she was difficult for a very long time. You know, so many people will say, oh, my child was so sweet and it was all the drugs that changed them. The addict is irritable, restless, and discontent. And she was irritable, restless, and discontent her entire life. I mean, we had wonderful times. We had great vacations. Loved her with all my heart, but she was a pain in the neck. And it was also hard because my older daughter was the complete opposite. She was very easy, very sweet. That golden retriever personality, easy to get along with. So Ashley kind of lulled us into a false sense of security. You know, when we started suspecting the drinking, the marijuana, you just think, well, you know, lots of kids do that. She's right, going to be right. okay. I think most people, this is a pretty, it's a blanket statement, but they're going to experiment with things. They're going to take risks. That's the definition of a teenager. <laughs> exactly. We hope as parents that maybe they do something stupid, like riding a motorcycle or something, get into a small accident or they driving cars. We didn't have cell phones until my oldest daughter she started to drive. So we said, all right, you're getting the phone. We're going to get phone. And she's like your older daughter. Not that Zach was nasty. He, there was something going on. He never did anything in high school, which was the weird part. I don't think he even drank a beer. Isn't that amazing? His friends were into music and that was their main thing, which was good. Many a day they would, they would <laughs> rehearse in my basement, but he played the drums. Oh. Yes. He tried other instruments, but I think that was the best thing for him. Now, what would you say was the worst part? Was it a progression? 
So one of the worst times, 2012, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so I went to Dallas, had surgery, and then I was back here in Midland having radiation. This was the fall of 2012. Kirby had graduated from high school. She had gotten accepted to multiple universities, scholarships offered all of these things because based on her test scores, because she tested so well, but she decided to stay home and just go to our local community college, which I was ready for her to go to college. I wanted her to be gone because she was so difficult so that I didn't have to see her every day, which sounds terrible, but. No, it's, it's hard, but it's a day-to-day thing. Really People can understand that who've been through it. But anyway, the radiation here in Midland department had been shut down for a week. So I was having to drive to Odessa, which is about 30 minutes away. And here I am having to deal with radiation. My husband calls me on the way back. He's come home. Kirby has gotten so out of it. I find out later it was alcohol and Xanax, which can be a deadly combination. But she had been driving around with some people. She wanted out. They kicked her out of the car. He found her stumbling down the street, vomiting, incoherent. I have to rush home. We use that chance to snatch her cell phone from her because that was her whole life was a cell phone. And come to find out later the reason, that's how they would communicate with people they got drugs from. That's why it was such a lifeline, which I didn't understand all of that till much later. But that night, you know, I made sure she was okay, that she didn't need to go to the emergency room, cleaned her up as best I could. She'd gone to sleep. Well, at this point, we had put key locks on the bedroom door because she would go in there and try to steal from us. But my husband and I were asleep, door locked, not just a thumb lock, but a key lock. And she comes and starts beating on the door, comes in completely incoherent, not knowing where anything is, but all she knew was that she didn't have her phone. And she was screaming at me, cursing at me that she wanted to hit me. And she actually tried to take a swing at my husband. I think that's when we really realized the severity of it, because at that point, I believe that was when we had taken away her car keys and she didn't get her phone back after that. We'd taken away the debit card. We had basically closed out the account, all of that, but that, you know, seeing her actually wanting to hit her father when she's 18 years old to get a cell phone back that hit home harder than anything. She, she put her hands around her neck, said she was going to kill herself if she didn't get it back. She found a piece of plastic and tied it around her neck and said she was going to kill herself. She used threats of suicide all the time as a manipulation tool. And yes, you need to take that serious. But in her case, it was all manipulation when she would do that. Five years ago, I couldn't have talked about it. Now I can talk about it. Hey, Landry. Um... I literally, it's been a hectic day. I got a rental car, which I got a couple hours ago, but I've just been trying to figure out like what to do with it. You know, I had a lot of stuff I had to handle and I got a phone and I spent like $150 to get this like piece of crap phone. I bought at a grocery store. Anyways. Yeah. I've been trying to get all my stuff back. You mentioned that Ben started a lot of rehabs. Is that when they started? Yes. Beginning of December of 2012. One of her friends called me and said, she's trying to find a gun and she truly wants to kill herself. The reason I knew it was serious was because she wasn't using that as manipulation. She was not telling me, if you don't give me my phone, if you don't just let me get high, this was secret. And this is someone that she had done drugs with and things like that. So that's when I reached out to an interventionist. I didn't even know what that was before. He recommended a place in California. We're in Texas. And so talking to them and actually had an interventionist come to my home, blindsided my daughter 
And it was a long day of trying to get her to go. But I actually had to look my 18-year-old daughter, my child that I carried for nine months, gave birth to. I had to look her in the eye and say, either you get on a plane right now with this complete stranger and go to rehab, a place we know nothing about except having talked to people you know nothing about, or you walk out the door with the clothes on your back. It had reached the point that it was that desperate. Whoa, that's, uh, that sounds like the making of a movie. It could have been a movie. There are, I think, sadly, thousands of movies like that. Now, 2021, they're finally getting some kind of a handle. I mean, but so much more work needs to be done. Um, have you heard about MAT? Yes. I have people whose stories they've shared with me almost, I don't know, I don't know, percentage, but a lot of them would give anything if they had that when they needed it. Absolutely. You know, I've heard some people push back, but if I had to do it all over again, I mean, he was on Suboxone for a while. This psychiatrist said, Zach and I decided that he should move out of this area and start to live a life, which I don't think we had a choice at that point because we had tried different rehabs. And that Suboxone was working because urine was clean and he, I could tell he wasn't doing anything. He went up to live near Boston and for three months he was okay. He was going for a job and he's actually interviewing for a job that they wanted him. I guess he celebrated the night before. They didn't find out what was in it. We just had a certificate, uh, opioid overdose. I would give everything if I knew back in 2005, six, that he could have survived on Suboxone for as long as he wanted to, or he was able to, and maybe they'd figure out how to stop this whole epidemic somehow. We're starting to do that, but for some of us, it's just too late. But can I say that's exactly why we're here? Because you and I don't want this to happen to anybody else. We don't want anyone to have to, to live with what we have to every day. I'm happy. My life is good. But every day I wake up with a piece of me missing. My child is dead because of heroin. You're absolutely right. If I'd known more about MATs and could go back, I would have pursued that. The problem is when you're dealing with it, you're in crisis mode. And you just have to take the recommendations that someone is giving you right at that moment. You don't have time to do all the research you wish you could because you're in crisis right then. I don't know what the answer is yet. The first thing is to stop the bleeding, keep people alive, and then maybe the research will catch up. That's what we hope and pray for every single day. And I think podcasts like this, just help to bring awareness to it because it affects everyone. Every single person out there either has someone in their family, someone they know immediately, or someone first or second, third out there that is suffering from this. She really didn't want to go for help, right? Oh no, she didn't have a problem. It was my problem. It wasn't her problem. It was my problem. So this went on and she's still getting high. And even, she, even though she was in the rehab, she came home after the rehab. December of 2012, we sent her to California. First time to go to rehab. I really knew nothing at all about rehab. I knew nothing. And at this point, it was just alcohol, marijuana, and Xanax. So she goes to a 90-day program in Southern California wonderful place. I think it was very, very good. 
And then she stayed for their college program. So she went to college at Saddleback College in California. I truly thought like I went and got treatment for cancer and I was fixed. I thought she was going to be fixed. I'd never heard the word relapse before. I didn't know any of that. I was clueless about it. And so when we went out to visit her at the family program, it started off good, but then she just started breaking all the rules. She was just a rule breaker by heart. That was kind of her, her personality. But after six months, she got out and they recommended that she stay in California, that she not come home to all of the bad influences that she had here. But of course, they can have bad influences anywhere they exactly. go. Exactly. She went into sober living and IOP, intensive outpatient. Of course, she hated that because they were monitoring her and she would have to get drug tests. And now we realize she just lived to get out so that she could get high again. And the problem is, and I don't know the answer to this. I've agonized over it. She goes to rehab for marijuana, alcohol, and Xanax. And who does she meet in rehab? She meets people who have done meth and heroin. And my little adrenaline junkie is fascinated by that. I can't understand this. How can anyone hear about heroin and think, wow, I want to try it? Because no little girl says, I want to grow up to be a heroin addict when I get big. But with the way her brain was wired, that's what she wanted. So she stayed out there. She was doing pretty well. She was actually doing really well, we thought. We were having her drug tested. She learned how to fake those, of course. She learned how to fake observed drug tests. Don't ask me how, but she could fake observed drug tests. And this, if you don't know, is where a woman is watching her urinate. She still faked those because she admitted all of it to me later. But she was going to college. She made a 4.0. She never made a B. But it turns out she was taking meth, which keeps you awake and you're able to do well and then eventually progresses and she starts doing heroin because she can't sleep from doing the meth. And we find out about all this in the fall of 2015. Meantime, she's gotten accepted to multiple nursing schools, to nursing schools in California, to UT Medical Branch in Galveston here in Texas. We thought she was gonna, I truly thought she was gonna start nursing school and be this incredible nurse and find out later that it's heroin. (laughs) How did you find out that Kirby died? Oh gosh. Um, Just to take it back just a little bit. So she's in California. She's got this boyfriend that we know is a very bad influence. We find out she's doing heroin. My husband goes out there, gets all of her stuff, loads it up to bring her home. She runs. We send her to detox. She only stays for a few days. She leaves. We tell her that all we're willing to do at this point is fly her across the country to another rehab that's been recommended on the opposite coast in Florida that's supposed to specialize in heroin. Well, we didn't realize at that point that the East Coast of Florida was not a good place to send someone who's trying to recover from heroin. So she goes from rehab to rehab to rehab. They have places that at this point, she's she's only 21. So she's on our insurance. So we're not doing private pay for anything. We're just letting her go to places that insurance cover. And she finally completes a 30-day program And her birthday, she turns 22 on January 22nd of 2016. We go out and visit her. And her therapist told me, this is the first therapist that she actually clicked with. And she said, I think she's just biding time to get out. She's hoping you'll give her her car back. And she said, I think she just wants to get high. She's just stringing you along. But she goes out. She gets kicked out of several sober livings. 
and she's finally gone to one that's supposed to have a higher level of care. It's supposed to be really good. She's gotten a little job. At this point, she is in West Palm Beach, Delray Beach area, the East Coast of Florida. She got employee of the month at her job in February. That's how she was. A, we haven't even talked about this. She was a hard worker when she wanted to. Friday, February 26th of 2016, my husband and my older daughter had gone to Dallas. I'm here by myself, just enjoying a quiet evening outside, sitting with the dogs and my phone rings and it's a detective from West Palm Beach, Delray Beach. And she says, are you Kim Collier? Are you Kirby Collier's mother? And of course your heart stops. My first thought is she's in jail. What'd she do? Even though she's never been arrested before, I thought, what'd she do? And she says, your daughter has overdosed. So I thought she meant she was in the hospital. And I said, okay, what hospital? I'm getting there as fast as I can. And she said, your daughter died. And I said, no, she didn't. You're wrong. Even though you know it's a possibility, you don't ever, nothing can prepare you for that. Kirby, she had finally found a sponsor. She had plans to go to work the next day, but she had been sober for a month. And after talking to someone who is a recovering meth addict, who's been just wonderful to help me deal with this, she said so much of the mentality with the addict is, I'm going to get high one more time, and then I'm going to get sober. And she said, I absolutely believe that was Kirby's thought. I'm going to get high this last time, and then I'm going to get sober. I'm going to go to nursing school. I'm going to get my car back. Well, she'd been sober for 30 days. So her body couldn't tolerate the amount of heroin it was used to. And it was cut with this new thing that none of us had heard of in February of 2016 called fentanyl. So my beautiful baby girl who had just turned 22, who had her whole life ahead of her, she was so strong physically, the strongest physical person I've ever known, so smart. She died alone in the bathroom of a sober living in Delray Beach, Florida, with a needle in her arm of a heroin and fentanyl overdose. And we lost our child. And I had to call my husband and my daughter in Dallas and tell them that our daughter and her sister was dead. The sad thing was, like you, I never got a chance to say goodbye. And I think I remembered I spoke to him the night before, have a great interview. Like you said, I'm going to take one more hit to celebrate. So there's too many of those stories. There are too many of them. So when she died, did you tell people what actually happened? I did. I was ready to at that point in her obituary we didn't put heroin overdose actually in the obituary, but I thanked her case manager from the treatment facility that she'd been at in California. She's a friend now. I mean, she's a friend for life. She helped me get through some really hard times. We've tried to do so much to honor her and I'm very, very open, but also she passed away in 2016. There's certainly more awareness of it now than when your son passed away. Fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> 
but we've brought in or helped bring in speakers here in Midland to talk about for parents what to look for for drug addiction. My husband's on the board of our local treatment facility. That's really helped him with healing. I've gotten involved with Family Promise, which works to, in family homelessness, one family at a time. And we actually fundraised and they built a whole new place with duplexes for families. And the playground is going to be named Kirby's Playground. It has a plaque that with her picture that actually says she died of a drug overdose so that, you know, families can see that. Was she aware of the stigma against heroin and drugs like that? She looked down on heroin and meth users and she'd never known someone who'd done heroin and meth before until she went to treatment. Oh yeah. She made fun of them. Wow. But she really wasn't affected by stigma. No, when she would come home and we'd go out, she would say, you know, people who hadn't seen her for a while, because at first we didn't tell anybody she went to rehab. At first we were mortified. I mean, my gosh, you know, everybody else has this beautiful, perfect, wonderful life. And you're the only one in the world going through this, unfortunately. We we think they're having the wonderful life, but go on. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I'm being sarcastic here. That's That's what we think, that everybody else doesn't have any problems. Everything's perfect because that's what people put on social media, the beautiful parts of life. But she would say, you know, I've been at rehab. My parents sent me to rehab, but she used that just to try to embarrass us. Of course. Now, the other thing is, even though she went to all these rehabs, Back then, who knew what accreditation they have? They could put up plaques. We are accredited by the board and this and that. But you must have heard, and I'm sure, where people spend six figures to go to a rehab that really becomes a spreader of this disease in a sense. I'm so glad that Shatterproof is around. Yes. Because they have their guide, and that's a big help. So imagine if there were places that were certified by an organization like Shatterproof. And I trust them 100%. They've been so helpful with trying to kill this damn disease, change laws and do everything that should have been done years ago. And don't get me started about the pharmaceutical industry. (laughs) Actually, she had a volleyball injury in high school. It was a terrible injury to her ankle. And I think that was the first time she was prescribed hydrocodone. You know, you or I would take that and be like, I hate the way this makes me feel. And I think for the first time, it made her feel at peace and the way she should feel. But no one knew about it. Back then, any doctor could prescribe it and they thought it was okay. You said she started out with drinking and, and marijuana and Xanax. One of the people that I interviewed, this is how she put what opioids are. Opioids are the cancer of substances. That really crystallizes everything. Well, they do. They'll steal your life. They'll steal your soul. So if no one knew about opioids and there was this big stigma, now, where do you think that stigma comes from? I think it came just from the way we picture an addict in our minds. Some sketchy, skinny man passed out in an alley somewhere who's a bum. When I grew up in the late 60s and 70s, the drug situation was, oh, a junkie? Not in my neighborhood. That's for minorities. That was the psyche of the country. There was no great push to help them. You just want to arrest them. I don't know if I necessarily thought of it as being black or brown. I think I associated it more with with white males for some reason. I don't know why. Because you lived in Texas and I'm here in New York City. (laughs) Growing up, you have this inclination to think that way. 
So it's been around, but didn't come to the fore until it was happening in other places, places like where you and I live. Right. That really started this movement to try and deal with this problem because it became not just there, it became everywhere in every state in this country. Age groups also, elderly people become addicted. So I think that's when we started to mobilize to combat this. I, I think the stigma is perpetuated by the media, of course, because it's a story, right? The more voices that speak out, the more positive change will happen. Every one of us who's been touched by it, who's able to speak out, because not everyone can. I have friends who've lost kids who don't want to talk about it, and that is 100% the right thing for them. But those of us who are willing to speak, I think we need to, because the more voices there are, the stronger we are. And that was the rationale behind my website, voicesfromtheopioidcrisis.com. Share, 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 if you can. I mean, I had people who lost someone like two, three months. If you know someone who either subconsciously or consciously upholds this stigma, what would you say to them to, to change their mind? So someone who thinks that it only affects people because they deserve it, because they chose to use and it's a choice. Exactly. I would say addiction is a disease without a doubt. If it can happen to my beautiful, brilliant, strong daughter, it can happen to anyone and you need to educate yourself about it and you need to be aware of it and you need to have compassion for those who are suffering from it and you need to have compassion for those who've been affected by it like you and me. And I think they don't realize that it's just not the immediate family that suffers. My brothers, they lost their nephew. My nieces and nephews, their nieces and nephews, they lost the chance to meet this funny kid with a big heart who loved to laugh and make people laugh. Kirby was the best babysitter. People still just rave about her. And so, you know, obviously my husband and I lost a daughter. Ashley lost a sister. Kirby's grandparents lost a granddaughter, but so many people here in Midland lost Miss Kirby, who was the best babysitter around, and these kids still talk about her, but that is one good thing. I think that so many of these kids whose lives she touched, and a lot of them are graduating from high school right now, will never touch an illegal substance or use a legal substance illegally because of Kirby's life, because she did touch so many people. That's what you have to keep in your heart. Well, and thankfully, we have a great group of friends. We have a great community. I have not felt judged or looked down upon because of what, what's happened with us. Thankfully, we live just in a, a fantastic place and have the best family and friends and church that have all supported us beautifully. You need that, that base. Oh, you do. I think it's such an isolating disease when you're going through it that if you don't surround yourself with people who love you and care about you afterwards, I don't know how you can move on. And I don't know how you could get out of bed every day. Everybody has their own way of grieving. We all have our way. Yes. And as long as it's healthy, it's good. There's unhealthy grieving too. I would sit there and just, I'd watch the tribute video from her funeral every single night and cry and cry and cry. And that wasn't healthy. I needed to, to move on. For me, it's, you know, trying to bring, bring awareness to it and and just trying to do my best to help others and hope that no one else ever has this happen to them.
have to find a way of getting laws changed. There have been some way out ideas, for instance, in Oregon, they'd be criminalized to take almost all drugs. You will get clean needles and there's programs like that all over the country. They will give you whatever micro dose that keeps you going. And it may sound counterintuitive to say, oh, let's give these people what their bodies and their minds tell them to get. Everyone has their opinion about this. What are your feelings? Have you heard of these programs? On legalizing all drugs? Yes. Yeah, I don't believe that's okay. the right way to go. In Oregon, there's a way they do it, which is intriguing to me. I don't know if I go for it or not, but at this point, I lean to anything that could help. So what they do is, if you say, I am a heroin addict, I want help, I need help. I don't want to get arrested, because that's what they do. They arrest you, and that's on your record. But if they come in and say, okay, so here's what you have to do. You have to agree to get therapy or some kind of intervention. Follow the rules of the program. And if you deviate from that, you will be arrested and go to jail where you'll have to go cold turkey. And it goes along with my philosophy of healing the world. You may keep that person alive long enough that maybe one day there'll be some, we'll call it a cure which will prolong your life and hopefully fix their brains because the research is there about how to control the risk-reward portion of the brain. So wouldn't that be great if instead of just going to jail because you're sick, it doesn't make sense to me. Oh, they also set up therapy. You have to go to speak to someone and it's all, I mean, it's medically supervised. I don't know. I don't know enough about that. It, it would be hard for me to say it's okay to do heroin. Now, I absolutely believe in MATs. I think those should certainly be looked at. I absolutely believe in therapy. I believe treatment needs to be completely overhauled because what we're doing is not working at all. I certainly believe we need to put time, resources into that. But I don't think I could ever say that it's okay to do heroin. Until they've done research and follow these people and maybe they're okay. I don't know how they could be. If they change the laws, making heroin, instead of a class one, a class two felony, this would allow the federal government to give grants to universities, to medical boards, to do the research. I think at this point, we don't know how to do this. There's a lot we don't know. And maybe trying something different. Doesn't mean it's still a, a felony, but not a class one felony. But just for using heroin? Is that a felony? I never felt like Kirby was under any kind of situation of being arrested for using. So what is the federal law about possession of opioids? Heroin is a Schedule I controlled substance. If you are suspected possessing, using, or selling heroin, you could be subject to arrest and prosecution in a federal court. And penalties get more severe with the more arrests. The question is, how are these laws enacted? started in 1971 with Nixon. And in 1986, the Federal Anti-Drug Abuse Act was passed, and states enacted laws that were even more punitive to people of color. Even in 2016, more people of color were arrested for cocaine, which is less addicting than opioids, than white people were arrested for heroin. Yeah, I think you, you wrote somewhere something about tall cops. Oh, yes, yeah, tall cop in the tall city. Yeah, there's a police officer. His name is Jermaine Galloway. And some really good friends of ours, their daughter spoke at Kirby's funeral. She was one of her best friends and they brought in a speaker and he talked about, you know, ways that parents can be aware of all of the drugs that are going on and how to look for 
signs and things that their kids might be using so that then we can prevent it from them ever going to jail, to prison. It was a really good thing. Lots of counselors went to it, lots of law enforcement, and I think it helped everyone to be more aware because we don't want our kids going to jail. We don't want them going to prison. If you could say one thing to your daughter now, what would you tell her? I would say, Kirby, I love you with all my heart. I miss you with all my heart. And I wish you were still home with us. I wish you could get to know your little nephew who's going to be born in another month. I wish that he could call you Aunt Kirby. And we just miss you so much. And we love you with all our heart. And you are a perfect fit in our family. And I wish you were here with us, baby. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. If you want to learn more and hear future episodes, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at These Ghosts Pod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, and share your own story if you like. You can catch our podcast on most major platforms. And as Zach always said, peace out.